How you doing everybody? Thanks for stopping by and joining us today for Rolling Over the Hill on the Live to Roll channel. Thank you for being part of the Live to Roll family. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsors, mobility professionals and urology professionals. They're a great and helpful group of experts that are part of our community and help make things possible here at Live to Roll. So big thanks to them. On today's show, we have a very special guest, Candace Cable. She is an accomplished Paralympian and much, much more. We'll be talking to her shortly. As always, make sure to include your questions, comments, and views in the chat. Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Soto. I'm a T12 spinal cord injury from a motorcycle racing accident back in 1974, closing in slowly on my 50th year. Um, so uh, looking forward to that. It's kind of a, a, a celebration in a sense. So let's uh, get started here, and I'll introduce you to you, my co-hosts, Bobby and Luis. Luis, what's up? Hi, everybody. Glad to have everybody here. Really excited about today's show. Um, my name's Luis. I've been injured coming up here next month on 44 years. I was in, injured in an industrial accident. I was ejected from an oil rig in North Dakota. And um, I'm a L3, L4 incomplete uh, SEI walker and roller. So I do walk quite a bit and I push my wheelchair both. And the purpose in that is so that I don't wear out my joints so I can walk as long as I want to without wearing anything out. Bobby, what's up? Hey, Luis. Good seeing you yesterday. You and Robert yesterday live uh, yeah. in person. But I'm Bobby Rohan. I'm at C5, C6. Quadriplegic of 34 years going, uh, I think next month too, is my uh, big changeover to the 35. I was injured in a bicycle accident here in Southern California. Um, enough about us three bozos, but really it's, it's our guest that uh, we're, we, yes. all three of us are super excited. And uh, when I uh, saw Candace a couple months ago, I was just like, oh my gosh, we get to finally, uh, I get to ask the question to see if you would come on and uh, join us here and be one of our special guests, uh, Candace. Uh, take it away if you want to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, Bobby and Robert and Luis. Uh, I'm going to follow suit with the uh, spinal cord injury dates and details. I had a spinal cord injury in 1975 at the age of 21. It was a car accident up in South Lake Tahoe. I was living and working up there as a blackjack dealer, and I got in a vehicle one night with uh, my boyfriend who had been drinking in the club, and I knew as soon as I got in the Jeep that something was going to happen, but I let that peer pressure hold me to that seat. And as soon as we went around a turn a little bit too sharp, the Jeep flipped over and I fell out of it and damaged the T12L1 area. But I have since had a surgery in 2001 to alleviate neuropathic pain. And that moved my spinal cord injury level up to about a T10, T9. And because with those surgeries, the computer-assisted dorsal root entry zone, there's the possibility of losing function and sensation. And both of those were lost during that surgery. But also the neuropathic pain was gone. And so it was a successful 
was a successful mm -hmm. surgery because anybody who's listening um, or even part of this crew here today knows that neuropathic pain that comes can come with spinal cord injury, it doesn't happen for everyone, is incredibly insidious because it really doesn't allow us to be present because it's chronic. And in those, you know, thinking about oh, how do I get out of pain while I'm listening to someone talk, just always is very distracting. And so I feel incredibly blessed and grateful to have had that surgery. And I honestly, I told people after it, I would give up more of my body to be out of that type of chronic pain. And uh, I sent I sent the guys a couple of pictures and one of them was me, Dave Kiley and Randy Snow with a, with a woman and it was our nurse because all three of us ended up having that surgery and it being successful. So, yahoo! I knew that was Randy. Um, we looked at that picture. I don't know if you have it, Sean, if you want to put it up real quick. It's a picture of uh, the three of them, but um, the guys didn't know Randy and I said Randy West and it's Randy Snow. Uh, Randy Snow, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. He was a big tennis player, correct? Yeah, so Randy also was injured in 1975 uh, with spinal cord injury from a, a big bale of hay falling on him and he was 16 at the time he was a tennis player and he was instrumental with several other people. Yeah, there it is. He was instrumental with several other people to advance the sport of wheelchair tennis and build it, as well as he was a wheelchair racer and he competed in the 1984 Olympic exhibition event that he and I were both in that was held during the Los Angeles 1984 games, which was our very first I think coming out party um, for yes. any kind of sports because we got on the big time broadcast and they did up close and personals and it really was that moment in time where we were moving out of that idea that disabled people couldn't do anything and people had to take care of us and into this like, oh my goodness, look at this. This is real sport. This is real looking wild and dangerous. I think uh, I think one of the announcers called it silent but deadly during that. <laughs> and uh, and uh, um, yeah, so Randy was a part of that. And then wheelchair basketball. He was a three-peat guy. Right. And uh, like so many of us, we were involved in sport in the 80s that was about building community and building a narrative around the idea that disability doesn't mean that your life is over. It just means reinventing what's possible uh, because society hasn't done that. Like they were hiding us. My, my first Paralympic games was 1980 and at the time, we were following the Olympic Games a little bit. There wasn't a contract there is now that says if you put on the Olympic Games, you will put on the Paralympic Games. Back then, it was up to the organizers if they wanted to do it. 
And that year, 1980, was the games in Moscow. And the Soviets said, we don't have any disabled people. So we're not going to hold the Paralympic Games. And yeah. our games were fallen. So it just shows, you know, how tucked away we were hidden in institutions or destroyed by society, even up into 1980. And so 84 was a pretty cool coming out party. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, we have so many questions, but I think we're going to, you know, break it down and, you know, kind of want to get started with uh, the beginning, right, Robert? And Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so you were injured in 1975 from, you know, you're in, uh, in Tahoe as a blackjack dealer, which um, I see, I picture it and I don't picture it, you know, at the same time. I, I don't know. I just, you know. And then, and I would also ask, like, that's your injury. You could have just come back to that. I mean, how hard is it to flip cards and um, and sit? You know, just tell, hey, we're all going to sit down here. And now you see those tables more often, and a lot of the lower tables. But you know, so you know, nineteen, you're twenty one. Just you know, you have a boyfriend living in Tahoe, and and I imagine you know, you're what uh, athletic, right? So that's the that's a little bit of a conundrum because I was not an athlete growing up and I wasn't I wasn't into competitive sport. I I liked being out in nature. I liked cheering my friends on for sure and having to participate in physical education for me at school was uh do I have to? Really? Oh, okay. Um let's get through this. I really was more a cheerleader in the sense of yeah, cheering my friends on to doing their sports. But the competitive aspect of it, for me growing up, felt too much like conflict. And there was some conflict in my home with my parents. They would argue quite a bit and uh, eventually ended up getting divorced after my spinal cord injury in 1975. But I was, I was really focused on avoiding any kind of conflict. So competition felt like that. But I was a water skier. I was a hiker. I had learned the season before in winter to ski. And so South Lake Tahoe was really a place where I felt like I could, you know, hang out on the beach and I could work in the club all night long and dance as I wanted to and, and, uh, and be with my friends. So so that night or early morning actually because it was four o'clock in the morning when i got off work i was swing shift and uh and i loved working in the clubs it was so much fun talking to people oh my gosh i i super enjoyed it but that night um i really did have that intuitive feeling that i didn't listen to that something was gonna happen and I shouldn't get in this vehicle. And I still got in it. And once it did happen, I totally flipped into the denial aspect of it not really happening. I was totally convinced that I was gonna wake up and it was gonna be gone. And I remember waking up in in the ICU at Barton Memorial Hospital in Tahoe 
and my mom walking in, and my mom lived in West Covina in Southern California, and she said, hi, how are you feeling? And I was like, mom, what are you doing here? You know, we're, we're supposed to meet in two weeks and go over to Hawaii and spend some time with my sisters and our and my dad because my dad was working over there for the summer and and she's like honey you've had a really bad accident and i was like no no i'm gonna be fine i just you know i just well, like uh you know broken back broken arm broken leg just put a cast on it should be good in six weeks i had no clue right i see you bobby like stuck in your head <laughs> i had no clue that that what I was in for. And uh, I had a surgery there where they took some bone from my hip and rebuilt the vertebrae that had been crushed. And and uh, a little side note, uh, Dr. Watson, Dr. Seven, and Dr. Fry were my doctors. They all three went on to be extraordinary orthopedic surgeons. In fact, Dr. Stedman became the US ski team surgeon. And during my skiing career we ran into each other again and he was like oh my god Candace because wow. you were probably the only spinal cord injured person I ever worked on <laughs> yeah yeah so I was at Barton for two months and then they put me on a, a plane and flew me down to Los Angeles to go to Rancho Los Amigos because my family was down there my father came from Hawaii as soon as I was injured, along with my two sisters, and he stayed the entire time I was in South Lake Tahoe, coming to be with me in the morning before he went to work, because he got a job while he was there. He would come eat his lunch with me. He would have his dinner with me. My dad said the scariest, one of the scariest things he ever did was watch me fly off in that little tiny plane. He was so scared for me. But he knew that once I'd gotten to South Lake, um, down to LA, I was in good hands. And, and then I spent four months at Rancho and, uh, and met several people. I remember Dave Kiley and Ed Owens coming into my hospital room and I'm laying there in the bed and they're, they're like, hey, you know, we're gonna play sports. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't think yeah. so. Yeah, it was, it was uh, like what Ed Owens and, uh, Jeff Minnebreaker, you know, were, were the yeah. rec therapists were there, were there when I was, and they were all about the basketball, especially Ed Owens, you know, he was like. Yes, they were all about, oh, you're gonna play Wilk. I was like, no, I'm not playing, because <laughs> yeah. you know what? This is going away, people. I'm not gonna be <laughs> in a wheelchair. And I progressively got deeper and deeper into the denial of it. And because of all the physical pain and the emotional, and I would say spiritual pain, of just not knowing and understanding what was happening with me because before my accident, I was really a kid that grew up feeling like I had every opportunity in my life. I could do whatever I put my mind to kind of thing. And then after the injury, there was this feeling that I was worthless and there was something wrong with me. And I think that's why I went so deeply into denial and started using drugs to really dampen and get rid of any type of pain I was feeling. And so while I was at Rancho, I, I remember they were giving me Valium and, uh, and uh, I was just like, yeah, that's not doing it, man. 
we were, we were, we were kind of talking about that earlier a little bit uh, this morning. And uh, yeah. Rancho, you know, like I said, I was 20 years old. I turned 20 when I was in the hospital getting out of there. And they're sending you home with jars of Valiums and Percocet. And I go, man, you know, Demerol, the, the weaning you and giving you morphine. I mean, it was that era, too, in terms of that was what they did medically. Uh, yes. And, uh, yeah, so, they just tied us with drugs, Robert. Yeah, that. Yeah, I, know. I mean, it's and, like I was a twenty-year-old kid, you know. And I go, oh, you all this, you know. And uh, did you okay. have an accident here? Take this. Yeah, exactly. And it was. I mean, here, take this. The prescription of value. I mean, you know, I didn't. I didn't have any spasms or anything like that. But I had thirty milligrams of Valium a day, and you know, I had the I had the pain issues, no doubt about that. But I didn't spasm. I wasn't spastic and all that. But man, I had those Valiums there when I needed them. So oh, I was I, yeah, 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 there, there was a lot of any, never had any type of spasms. Never. Yeah, yeah, same for me because yeah. I was ambulatory up until about 10 years ago. Um, uh, using crutches and braces and stuff like that, but yeah, in fact, spasms I didn't want them because this way it would inhibit my walking and all that. So, but uh, it's it's um, it's just remarkable how looking back and just what they did because I do a lot of support groups and visiting hospitals now, and you know, they're real limited on. And what pain? What they give out for pain medication? I mean, lots of times some of these yeah, hospitals just yeah. get Tylenol. You know, say deal with it, kind of. You know, but um, so you grew up in Southern California, and uh, yes. when did you yeah. when did you leave Southern California? Well, so I went. Uh, I grew up in West Covina. Because uh, I live in San Dimas. I'm in San Dimas. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I I know all those areas pretty well, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, and. So my, uh, my growing up was, I walked to California Elementary and then Willowwood Middle School was a new, brand new school. I, I was part of the first class that went from sixth grade to eighth grade through it. Mm -hmm. And we could either ride our bikes or take the bus to that. And then I walked to high school. I went to Edgewood High School. Edgewood, and yeah. so mm -hmm. it was really this tight community that I was really embraced by. And I could basically, on the street that I lived, there was an alley behind our house. And so there was a whole bunch of houses on the other side. And we were all so connected. I mean, some there was groups of us that families that took vacations together down in Baja, Mexico. And, yeah. and yeah. that was uh, a that was the days of the true neighborhoods when you were growing up, right? Yes, yes. absolutely. I could walk into anybody's house at any time yeah. and they could walk yeah. into ours. And my yep. mom and my dad were there for everyone. My dad helped build our community center over by California Elementary. And and so growing up in that space really drove home the the deep desire to be a part of a community. Yes. And uh, yeah, and then I was a, uh, I sent a, a black and white of me kind of standing there. I think I'm 10 years old in that, and I'm going off to Campfire Girls Camp. You know, yeah. it's right by the bus. My dad's kind of in the background with some of the people. And so I participated in all kinds of community activities and things. And I have two sisters and a brother. I'm the oldest. And I have a brother that's three years younger. I have a sister four years younger, and uh, and then my youngest sister is 11 years younger than me. And uh, so as growing up, we were just a 
really tight community of doing things together and never feeling like we were, I don't know, excluded from anything. Yeah, it was great. I loved, I tell people I had a leave it to beaver childhood. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's kind of dated now because people don't really understand. The yeah, television. there's some people, some people are going, what? What was she talking about? What she leave talking about? Yeah, go on yeah. one of those make it night things or yeah, something. Yeah. Or they'll be able to. Did neighbors have it where, uh, like our neighborhood, eventually we would start making doors between the fences so we can get to our neighbor's backyard, you know, between. Yeah. I mean, that's how back in the day you grew up, you know, like you said, we'd go into anybody's yeah. house. You know, there was only that people yeah. were, they shunned upon it because, you know, they just didn't have the kids and they're like, you know, but everybody else who had kids, it was a free for all. Yeah. No, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. that you made because I know in the time when I got hurt, you know, I lived in the same childhood home as, you know, when I, up until when I got hurt, almost 20. And it was funny because that's like you had mentioned, Candace, how long you were in the hospital. Back in those days, they kept you in the hospital six months because you did all your, yeah. your therapy in, inpatient and all that. But um, so when you got out, you, you were already in Tahoe. What was the, when you left uh, the hospital, when they discharged you, what what were you going through at that time? What was the big change for you? And also what led you to get into sports? You know, why did you choose sports? Yeah, well, so I'll take this back just a little bit to, I graduated high school. I didn't really have any aspirations to go to college. I got a job, I moved down to Long Beach and then I lived in Seal Beach, I lived in Sunset Beach, and I met some people that were going to move up to South Lake Tahoe. And I was like, hey, what the heck? I'm coming. <laughs> and I'd never been there before. But I have to say, there was this feeling when we got to coming up Highway 50 from the Nevada side, there's this view of Lake Tahoe that's just absolutely gorgeous of the lake and the trees and there was this sense in me like I was coming home and I had no idea uh, why, because I'd never been there. But back to your question, Robert, about after the hospital and getting out. So by the time I was leaving Rancho, I had already discovered different ways to get more pain medication as well as dabbling in heroin a little bit uh, someone introduced it to me and they were like here do this and see yeah, what you yeah. think i was like whoa that's that puts me almost to sleep thank you because i don't want to feel this i don't want to yeah. feel any of it and yeah. and i had no real coping skills of how to deal with trauma i had no no real guidance on you know, what would be my boundaries or what would be the things I needed to do to create self-care and take care of myself. None of that was really available in the 70s. And my mom had just started on a journey of self-discovery for herself. And so she was in counseling and she encouraged me to find some counseling. And I was just like, no way, man. Yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. I'm going this direction. I, I stayed, I stayed in, a, in a house with a couple of people that I'd met for a while, and then I ended up getting my own apartment. 
I was probably about, I think, a year, you know, as I think to look back on it and asking my brother and sister who are, you know, closer to my age. My youngest sister was only 10, you know, when my spinal cord injury happened. And, and you know, one of the things about our spinal cord injuries is they don't just happen to us. They happen to all of us, like our whole family. And then our friends, too. And I had friends disappear because they couldn't handle it. And, and so I probably spent about a year in a real drug-induced stupor that was, hey, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and this is going to be gone. And literally, I did wake up one day and I said, I don't want to do this anymore with my life. I need help. And I went to my mom. And I said, Mom, I'm a drug addict. Hey, thanks for that. <laughs> thanks, Bobby. <laughs> I was like, no, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, it was a my, my stepmom, thing yeah. of like, no, you gotta, you gotta do something, or you will kill yourself, even though you're not trying. And yeah. and uh, my mom was like, oh my god, thank you. And I went and got in the drug rehabilitation ward on the other side of the highway at Rancho. <laughs> and I went through the detox and then I spent several months on that ward and going through group therapy as well as working with a psychologist three times a week. And they were all busy at other times doing some kind of activities and sports because it was part of the rehabilitation for us of, you know, removing, trying to move past the addiction. And they were just like, we can't, we're not doing anything for you. We're going to send you to the other side. And I got sent back to the spinal cord injury ward. And that's where I met Jeff Minbreaker. Across and, the highway. Huh? You were across yeah, the across highway. the highway. And, uh, and then there were two people that I actually met while I was at Rancho the first time. Brad Parks came in and also Eric Walls. And I met them as I was getting ready to leave Rancho for the first time and then reconnected with them as I went back. And uh, so I was over on the other side of the street and they were playing wheelchair tennis. John Chambers was there with Jeff Minnebreaker doing the recreation therapist gig. And they were inventing wheelchair tennis. And then they were teaching Brad and they're, Eric was a part of it. And I was learning, okay, wheelchair basketball, wheelchair tennis. I still wasn't that hip on playing these sports. I was kind of like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and I really didn't get motivated until I worked with the Department of Rehabilitation and they got me into Long Beach State, our alma mater, Robert. And, and I found Disabled Student Services. And when I came into Disabled Student Services, it really was the feeling like the angels were speaking to me saying, I found my people. And now I was clean, uh, not taking any more drugs. I had some tools in my toolkit on how to deal with the trauma that I've been through and things that I needed to do to dismantle the the things that had happened to me and the ideas that I had had incorporated in myself that I wasn't good enough and dismantling those 
into, yeah, I have value just like anyone else. And Disabled Student Services, I found my community and I wanted to hang out with everybody that was there. And I remember also um, seeing a gentleman who then became a really good friend of mine who was using a power chair and he was using a, a device to speak with. And I came to find out that he had cerebral palsy, CP, and I remember looking at him and thinking, you know, my own bias and internalized ableism was, I'm not like him, you know? And I was thinking, I'm not that disabled kind of, you know, kind of thing, right? And the truth is, is yeah. that we are all one and we are the same. And that disability at that moment was a bad thing in my head and I was trying to run away from it. But what I learned through sports and my community was that it's a part of my identity and it isn't a bad thing. It's just a human life experience we will all have should we live long enough. And, mm -hmm. and, and so Long Beach State was this moment of transition for me of not still wanting to be a competitive athlete because I didn't really know what was out there, but to be with the people like me and learn how they dealt with this, right? Because I still needed more skills and I'm still building skills at almost 70 years old. I'm still building skills. Uh, but that's wanting to be with other people like me. Well, you know, and the Disabled Student Service at Long Beach State um, was was a new uh, new concept like because I mean when I was going there they had to move classrooms because there was no elevators in the building and they had to put it downstairs where you know all that and when David Sanfilippo came in there and he had uh, actually put some of the disabled students to, to help work around there because they you know to help you register classes just different things like that and it was really the, the campus really went out of the way at that time for for what I was going up against then for myself as well other than just dealing with hard fact hill there was a hill there there yes you had to go from yeah. the upper campus to the bottom of the campus and then you had to go back up and you know you try to find different ways to go through but uh it, it, it really was a good good program and i think they set the precedent on a lot of uh a lot of uh, other colleges to have that that program and i guess i agree with you i agree with you i i think you they were way ahead of the curve you know we didn't the Rehabilitation Act had just been written in 1974 um, or 1973, and it still hadn't had the regulations yeah. written to enforce it until 1977. So there was, and there was no Americans with Disabilities Act. That was 1990. Yeah. So I agree with you 100%. Long Beach State was way ahead of the curve. And I remember, uh, yeah the heart attack hill. I, when I first got my classes, I didn't take that into consideration. And I had upper campus, lower campus. Yeah, upper yeah, campus, lower yeah. Campus. I was taking yeah, naps. <laughs> I tell you, you guys, this this hill, I don't know how many degrees it was because it was brutal. And I was in oh, you know, good shape yeah. then. I had I had a lightweight wheelchair, that quadra chair and all that stuff. But going up and down that hill, so, you know, uh, and you'd be at the very front of the campus and your next class you had how many minutes to get there you know it was like but it yeah it, it was a good program and that's maybe what i want to emphasize because you know, that yeah. made a big yeah. difference in going to school i mean yeah and you used to see a lot of people in chairs there i mean there was a 
it was a it was a, a good draw because you know you you were taken care of there and, and they yeah. they presented yeah. the classes um, as they needed to for accessibility. Well, and, and the other you. thing too is the the professors that were there were all very much, or at least the ones I interacted with, they yeah. were all very much willing to adapt, and yeah. that was really awesome because there was a lot of adaptations that needed to happen for us that were using wheelchairs as mobility to be able to participate. I mean, I signed up, I signed up for a swimming class and I thought it was a swimming class, like learn how to swim. It was the swim team. <laughs> and uh, I had no idea. And I ended up on the pool deck and the, the coach and the instructor, John Urbanchek came out and he was like, Hey, this is a, you know, this is the swim team. And I was, oh, and he goes, but if you want to stay, I will yeah, put cool. you That's in the cool. pool and I will teach you what to do and you can be a part of this team. And that was my first real introduction to, I would say, competitive sport because I was a part of that swim team, the only paraplegic, they're all non-disabled <laughs> people. Yeah. And and he would, if they were swimming 100 meters, he'd have me swim 50. And I got to participate in pretty much everything that was going on for them. There were little shaving parties that they had I participated in. And yeah, yeah, you know how swimmers they used no, to shave No, yeah, because I was a swimmer, Candace. No, I was <laughs> oh, a swimmer. So I, I remember in high school doing the shave down parties, you're back and, you know, it's just, yeah, they, they, it's pretty yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, it was such a bonding like, experience. And yeah, they were all very inclusive. Like, they were bringing me in. And John Urbanchek was just like, we're going to figure this out. And John also, you know, when I talked about Dr. Shevin, Don became a world-renowned swim coach and U.S. ski team swim coach. But he, he and I, again, we met years and years later after I'd retired from sport. I was at the that um, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's offices doing a program with the with the Foundation for Global Sports Development, where they bring youth in to experience the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. And John was there, and we ran into each other, and it was just like, oh my God, you were like the first person really that said, come on. Let's do this. Yeah. We'll figure it out. And and it really changed my life because that then made me want to be a part of the competitive sport that was out there that disabled people were doing and and participate in building it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a that was that was a for me that was a critical time and because I was going kind of going the same thing uh, when I went back to school and things like that and it was a and it was a campus that i was going to before my injury so when i you know got my, my uh my stride back again i kind of went back to school but it was um it was just kind of a weird time it was with, just with the culture of the 70s late 70s you know there was a lot of a lot of stuff that you know that you wanted to be part of and sometimes you maybe didn't feel like you belonged but you do, you do find your sense of community and that mm -hmm. that makes a and then especially in the college atmosphere, I think, you, uh, you know, people are more open minded. 
uh, a little bit more open-minded, at least what I experienced back then. Uh, but again, it was it was a different time than it is now for people that are getting injured now. But um, yeah. and it's it's it, so funny when you think about you guys talking with the old days, Metabreaker and uh, Randy Snow and Dave Pat. And I don't know if you saw it or you can see the picture up here. Yeah, with the that was the oh, one that was Dave, at Casa Colina. Yeah, and his kids. Oh my God, that's yeah. In uh, Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Um, so I have that. Cool. I got it at a. I used to work at a rehab place, a rehabilitation place, and uh, when we closed down, I'm like, I'm taking those posters. So, yeah. so but it just seems like uh, so many greats came out of that time and really uh, built the path for us in sports. And uh, and I, you know, sports isn't for everybody. And, and kind of like you said, I wasn't into like thinking I was going to be this athlete and in my time, but it really helps, you know, with the uh, getting over some things, learning new things, and and not just sports, but more, more about life and about how to, you know, deal with this and how to deal with that. And, it, you know, learning that the doors just open up and the travel and then the experience you get of meeting different people uh, with different disabilities, not just spinal cord. And you're like, wow, there's a whole nother world out here. And it becomes like a family and you really, really find your base and you just really understand like, I'm going to be okay. I mean, when I found sports again, I just, and, and knew that I, I can be competitive in my own way. It's just funny how we can just, you know, look back on it and go, that's when I knew everything was going to be okay. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you that sports is a really easy way to rebuild our self-esteem and um, our sense of accomplishment, right? I mean, that first ball that you catch is pretty significant, right? And, and so that feeling that I got on the, in the swimming pool with Coach or Banchak was one thing, but when I connected with all the disabled people that were a part of that Southern California community that were developed because wheelchair racing was being invented, wheelchair tennis was being invented, and 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 making it inclusive for everyone, we we turned into a a, a bigger community that was supportive of all the different changes that we had to make to transition through the different barriers that were already in place by society saying, no, you can't do this. No, you can't go there. I mean, right? Like you all yeah. will remember this yeah. is that there were no curb cuts. And so yeah. if you wanted to get off a sidewalk, you had to find a driveway. Yeah. And then you or, had or to they, wheel in the street. Yeah. yeah. And you had to wheel part of the, the Part of the rehab. Part of the rehab was showing you how to go wheelie down the curb and how to get back up it. And, um, but yeah, yeah. it's, it, it, it was a, well, you know, there in the seventies, I remember, uh, cause there was no curb cuts. I, I remember that, but, uh, there was a, uh, movie that came out coming home with John Boyd and Jane Fonda that was right. filmed over at Rancho and mm -hmm. back in their culture, that was like 76, 77. They weren't sure if that movie was going to be what it, they expected it to be because 
they weren't sure how people felt about Vietnam and how about the wheelchairs and things like that. I mean, that was in the late 70s. So the culture, you know, was a whole different game. Uh, they, they were trying to break those barriers, you know, for and, and sports just happened to be the development of wheelchair tennis and things like that. You know, happened to help break a lot of those barriers for our generation. Bobby? Yeah, absolutely. Or Robert, weren't you in the movie? Uh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, but yeah, exactly. But the thing was, is it was it was a um, it was just weird because of the, what the culture was all about. And like I said, and, and Candace said it just the no curb cuts. You know, that was like that's unthinkable now. Now you know they got them yeah. everywhere with, with all the little yeah. bump things on it too. Now for the well, for the I have to say, period. I live downtown LA, and there's still some spots. That we don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. To, now, we still yeah. You know, and, yeah. and making sure that, you know, all areas are movable for everyone. And, you know, when I, so my 27 year career in competitive sport in Paralympics, it really showed me in the beginning my first one, 1980, that that there were a lot of opportunities to not just self-advocate for what my needs are, but to advocate for other people and not just necessarily disabled people, but all people being able to have that freedom of self-determination, right? Like being able to determine, I want to go here, I want to do this, I want to be that and those opportunities being available and they weren't available for any of us and and my vehicle of wheelchair racing and being a part of the group that pioneered that sport really taught me that we can figure it out if we work together you know if we collaborate if we come together and we listen to each other and then build upon that we as a group of wheelchair racers really wanted to develop the wheelchair division in the road races because we were spinning around the track and that was okay and it was working for us but we really loved the road racing that was the coolest thing and we were evolving the equipment so that it could adapt to the road with the steering devices and things and we developed this this uh this group called the International Wheelchair Road Racers Club, and we came up with the guidelines for race directors on how to integrate the wheelchair division into running races so that we could all be a part of the same thing. Because one of the places where I really felt inclusion for one of the very first times back into the non-disabled world was in a 5K, and it was here in Los Angeles, and. The feeling was for me, because there was some other folks in wheelchairs and we were going to do this 5K, and was that we crossed the same start line, we did the same course, and we crossed the same finish line. And that for me was this moment of realization that, yeah, why not? Why shouldn't we be a part of this? And and the work that we needed to do to to dismantle those old negative stereotypes and biases around what disability is and isn't. And, and sports has that wonderful, I like to call it the automatic door opener, you know, that we have now where you push the button 
and mm -hmm. the door opens. Sports is like that. In any conversation, if I talked about sports to someone and my Paralympic career and, you know, and they want to know about medals and things, I could start talking about that and then I could transition into the, the bigger, bigger stuff like, okay, so how are we going to make sure public spaces are available for all people, people who use wheelchairs, people who are blind, people who are deaf, all of that. Like, how are we going to make it available for all of us to participate and then embrace each other's knowledge that we bring to it? And and sports was that way to be able to open that door and and then just go right in. And and I am forever grateful for the people that I met during it, the pe the people that I engaged with the the people I didn't even like that were a part of it that that were a part of my space that I learned from because because there I you know my feeling is that there's always something to learn from a space and to be open to that by suspending my own bias and my my own ideas of what I think something should be and hear about what somebody else thinks it should be so obviously we're, you're not you weren't known for the tennis player or the swimmer we know you as somebody who finally got into wheelchair racing and that you uh the 5k which 3.1 miles and uh back then i don't know if you have it sean if you can uh our producer bring it up but you started out in a four-wheel racer yep yep we had those four-wheel racers a little black and white and uh Yep, that was, uh, and yeah. you can see we got, I got the tie rods on there and everything because that was the yeah. beginning of our, our steering that we invented to be able to compensate for the crown of the road, you know, because mm -hmm. road races mm -hmm. were in the road and the street has a crown so the water runs off of it and that kind of thing. And our wheelchairs wanted to run towards the gutter and we didn't always get the center of the road. So doing that adaptation made it so that our wheelchairs would run straight and we wouldn't be just working one side of our body trying to keep out of the gutter and and uh yeah that was you know what was really cool about this picture is i in the early 80s the minivans came out chrysler put brought out the first minivan and i saw the opportunity i was like man the minivan is so cool for someone who uses a wheelchair to be able to get around in and get their lifts, but they were not working that well and things. And, and I went to Chrysler and I pitched it to them. And for 10 years, I was sponsored by Chrysler. I had one of the very first major endorsements from a major corporation that they used me in a lot of their advertisements and they, they had me come to a lot of their conferences and and uh, and they supported me for 10 years with a new minivan every year and some financial support. And and I was, yeah, I got that right in front and center on my helmet and on the side of my wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah. And well, those knees up so close, man, you, know, you see now, remember they got them underneath them. Now, and, now it, isn't it really, really, now you sit on top of your knees and tuck behind you, right? Yeah, yeah. So when I retired in 2006, um, that's how I was sitting. It's the way they're sitting now with the three-wheeled wheelchair. Yep, just like that. And uh, thank you. And putting that up there and 
being a part of the Invacare group and top end building the racing chairs. It was a, it was a real fun time of transformation of what our equipment can look like and where it will go. And it really hasn't changed that much. The chairs have gone a little bit longer and most people are using the disc wheels, but uh, I, I got the opportunity to take it all away. And then in 1989, I tried downhill skiing and I was like, oh, I think I could be good at this. And my, my marriage was, there it is, my marriage was breaking up. Uh, my husband found someone he liked better. So uh, we got divorced and I was like, heck, I was living in San Luis Obispo. I'd been there for about five years. I was, you know what? I think I'm going to go up to Tahoe and see if I'm any good at this skiing thing. And I was, and I moved up there. And I stayed in the Truckee Tahoe area for 25 years and transitioned from downhill skiing competitively and to cross-country skiing, which really was, again, very similar to wheelchair racing in the aerobic capacity piece. And that was something that I really loved a lot was the aerobic piece of, that, that of constant, the exercise. That constant yeah, movement. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too, Bobby, was that I was a hiker before my accident and I thought it was something I would never do again. And cross-country skiing was hiking again. Like under my own power, I could explore an area, a valley, a mountain. And, and then that felt like I'd come full circle. And uh, so I love all of the sports that I had been a part of and the competitive aspect of it. But I knew in 2006, I was finished with that and that I wanted to spend more time the experience of disability and understanding that there's nothing to be afraid of and that our history and our laws and our sports and our languages and our people all have great contributions that continue to bring us all into this main flow together. And so I developed some curriculum around understanding the experience of disability a kids program called Disability is Possibility. And, uh, and for adults, it was a, a little less uh, fun in that it's uh, understanding a disability. And, and uh, I really find that to be a place where I get the opportunity to the, see the light bulbs go on for non-disabled people and them feeling like, ooh, okay. Maybe this isn't something that I should be afraid of. And, uh, and, and also work in advocacy and policy development. I, I'm a part of an organization called the U.S. International Council on Disabilities, and we work internationally with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is the very first human rights document to include people with disabilities. The human rights documents first were written in 1948. We're hearing a lot about it right now because of the what's going on uh, with the genocide in Palestine. And so in 1948, they didn't include people with disabilities in that human rights document. Our inclusion in human rights was not till 2008. 
when the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability was written and put up for signature as well as ratification. And almost all the countries in the world have ratified the CRPD. Uh, the United States is one that has not. And um, still? Yeah, yeah, the United States still has not ratified it. So the U.S. International Council on Disabilities, one of our intentions is to educate people and the American public in general about the CRPD, the Convention on Rights of Persons with Disabilities, so that when we do get a Congress that we could try to get it passed in, we'll be ready with knowledge and understanding of why this is important for everyone. It's not just about disabled people, it's about all of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't you also do some uh, uh, testimony and advocacy in the travel side for the disability community as well? Yes, thanks, thanks. So it's, um, I got to travel with my sports, right? And yes. All of us that have traveled know that outside the United States, there's not a whole lot of laws in place that protect us and support access for us. Now that we have this CRPD and countries have ratified it and signed on to it, there are more laws and there is more development. But in the travel space, there still is a lacking of understanding that everything and I think in all spaces, if we think about it, everything we do that makes it accessible for disabled people really makes it better for everyone. And there's a there's a, been papers written on this called the curb cut effect. And yes. basically, yeah, and I love that you're nodding your head. Basically, it means that once that curb cut was put in so someone who uses a mobility device can be able to get up on the curb with these, not have to learn how to jump it, right? Uh, it works for everyone. I'm worrying about doing a, you know, the mom, doing a, yeah, exactly. The moms yeah, with yeah, strollers, the delivery industry. man with a, a, a push cart. The cart? Uh, yeah, yeah. a wheel bag. Yeah, a yeah, dolly. everybody. Yeah. Everybody the can bicycle. use these things. Yes. And I, um, I recently just took a picture. I don't know, Sean, I sent it to Sean, but we saw you on the Olympic committee as well. And I saw you on C-SPAN. And so oh, with yes. you and Chuck yeah. and a couple others. So I didn't know. And Sean, if you want to put up a couple of that, we, we, you sent also about some of your other work of, of, of doing that, but you know, so you, I think, you know, when, and it, you see this in a lot with uh, sports athletes and, you know, after a career in sports, you know, where do you go from there? And usually that gives you a good platform to, to use your voice. And it's really great to see, you know, someone like you, you know, I guess you can say what fighting or I don't know if you want to use that word fighting or, uh, you know, making paths and waves for, you know, the future of those that, you know, mm -hmm. that need that little push and that help yeah. and that awareness, uh, awareness, and awareness. Yeah. And so it's, it's great that we can rely on uh, on the past to come up for the future. Mm -hmm. and, and, and oh, for all thank that you. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thank oh. you, Bobby. And 
And Robert and Lewis, it's, you know, one of the things that I, I in, innately felt is that it's not just about me. When I was figuring out my way and then connecting with my people and figuring out how they did it and seeing if that worked for me and, and where can we make the changes so that no one's left behind and that each and every one of us knows that we can make an impact because everybody's here for whatever their gift is to give. And, and for myself, I really was so sad. Oh yeah, that's a, from the C-SPAN. Um, yeah. I was so sad about how I felt left out and I didn't want anyone else ever to feel that. <clears throat> that picture, <clears throat> excuse me, that picture that was up there, that was, there's a commission that has been put together, a congressional commission to explore what the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee <clears throat> has been doing or not doing for athletes and not just disabled athletes, but also athletes without disabilities. And because we've seen a lot of abuse and we, uh, I'm sure that you all heard about the gymnasts that were abused by their doctor and yeah. Larry Nasser going to jail. So that sparked the conversations about the concepts that have come forward on athletes being taken advantage of and abused and that the systems that are in place don't support the athletes. And so I was testifying there as an athlete and an advocate on the experiences of ableism that are rampant within sports that only certain sports or certain people in sports are considered valuable. And that's what ableism is about, is saying that some bodies are more valuable than other bodies and, and why we need to educate again i'm the educator why we need to educate on what ableism is and why we need to dismantle it because ableism is connected to racism and racism is something we need to dismantle also in the world in this country specifically because it continues to discriminate and oppress people and people with disabilities are also a part of that group that is being oppressed upon. And we need to recognize that and then take, take actions to dismantle it and then build a better system, right? Mm -hmm. We need to build a better system. And, and, uh, I hope until the day I die, I get to be a part of building a better system. And I have to say that the three of you and also Live to Roll, you're all building a better system here. The podcasts that you do, the activities that are available, you're all active in building a better system. And I, I appreciate being on here today, but I also commend you too, for the work that you all have been doing 
in all of your lives, but continuing to build something better. So thank you so much. Thank you. And, you know, I think I think we all have, uh, you know, a special little gift. You know, we all have an experience of something of why or something happened to us where we want to give more. And mine was into peer mentoring. I became a professional peer mentor. And that's how I got to work at Rancho for and be a supervisor for many years. And because when I got hurt, no one came to my my yeah. my room and said, yeah. no, it's going to be OK. Look at me. I can you know, pop a wheelie and I, I play sports. And I had one gentleman come in and he was a, a wheelchair racer. Uh, I, I think he just loved it and just pair a low, low, low injury and just like, it's going to be okay. And I'm like, well, you got your arms. What do you do with these quad hands? And yeah, but yeah. You know, it's, so I, you know, eventually after I got out, when that first phone call came and the therapist said, hey, somebody from your high school got hurt. He's about the same level as you. Can you talk to him? That was my passion. That was my love, you know. And then, thank God I found sports. And now, you know, someone in their 50s, you know, continuing to find new love and new advancements with sports. It's great. And I think that's where we all make the path of those that are coming up and those that are not injured yet and for, to, for tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's, it, it, and it's nice to make that connection with someone to say, yeah, they're my, they were my true mentor. Looking back now, my true mentors was Ed Owens and uh, Jeff Minnebreaker. Um, and you yes. know, it's, it, it's funny because, you know, and it's important to have that because that is my realization there looking back, you know, maybe at the beginning, you didn't really realize how much they really were molding you in a sense to accept and to keep moving forward. But it's nice to have that and to keep, establish that now for a lot of these new and young injuries now and to see somebody with positive attitudes and stuff like that that goes a long way that and that's it's it just it's just a uh i don't know what the words i'm trying to say it's so good to see that you know or yeah. that, someone, that you're teaching someone or encouraging someone or whatever and to get some like uh some satisfaction from that it, it's just it pain paint it back pain forward well and i you know i want to say too you know for me, um, being a woman, it was all men. And I yeah. was just kind of like, where's the women in the beginning? You know, it was all men in the hospital with me. And I, was, I felt so isolated. And then I met Mary Wilson Bogle. And she changed my life. And I, I saw this other woman who was using a wheelchair and she was vibrant and she was beautiful and she was having fun. And she was involved also with Jeff and Brad. The quadrature, right? Eric quadrature. Building, building the quadrature. And yep. so she was a businesswoman. And I was just like, yeah, I can be that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And it, 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 yeah, it just was, it was that well, moment um, too for me to be like, oh my gosh, there's other women. And yeah. so throughout my mm -hmm. career, I have really focused also on making sure that women are included, that women are getting equitable treatment. Women yeah. are always a part of the thing that we're doing because the statistics that I understood, and I haven't looked for a really long time, so there may be changes now. But back in the day, it was 80% of folks with spinal cord injuries were men. And, uh, 
you know, oh, yeah. so there weren't that many women and a lot of women weren't like myself, really, they weren't involved with sport before their injuries. And so why would they go into it? And oftentimes they would go back to a life or doing something that was quite isolating and, and not having the opportunities. So, um, yeah, Mary, you're the one. I was just going to say in the chat here, the angry quad makes a great point. He says, I find this community is a rather tight group that has each other regardless of sex. And I feel that way about Candace because I've known Candace, what, what we've known each other, what, 10, 12 years or something like that. Oh, yeah, I think and, longer than that. We met up in Truckee. Yeah, up in Truckee. But uh, I knew of you back in the, in the 80s when I first got injured. And you, along with all the guys we've been talking about, was one of my heroes. I didn't know you as a peer mentor, but you were the one of the people that when I looked at Marty Ball and Dave Kiley's kicking my butt up and down the court, <laughs> I, I was watching you race along with these guys, and you were right there with them kicking their butts when they were kicking yours. And it was awesome. Oh, yeah. thank you. It was. You're right. It was awesome. I had so much fun. It, with that. it, it was oh, a golden God. age of sport. It really was. Did you uh, Did you know Emily too? Emily Ball? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Emily Cotton. Cottonball. Cotton, yeah. 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 Cotton yes. Go. Yeah. Good friends. Really good friends. And um, I met Emily while wheelchair racing and uh, and yeah, Emily has always been an inspiration for me too because because she, you know, she made a path for herself that was creating these opportunities for people again that were disabled and using wheelchairs to be the best they could be, right? Because she was getting them in into these chairs that fit yeah. them. Because I, yeah. you know, I know Robert, you probably will remember this. I don't know, Bobby and Louise, if this happened to you, but we were putting these water. big 50 pounds stainless steel mm -hmm. Everest and Jennings wheelchairs yeah. that didn't fit us. <laughs> like, well, that's, too that's what the rehab had for us, but then luckily it was a quadra that, all right, you're not going to use this. This is the only piece of well, crap we have here. I, I, we'll I, this I one. <laughs> I remember when my when I got the first quarter chair, Jeff Minnebreaker, that's when he was in Westlake in the warehouse there. It's yeah. doing the thing. He goes, This yeah. is gonna change this is gonna change your life. And I think he gave me the chair. I, you know, I, I, but they were it was just and it did. It changed my life. And then I kept in contact with him for a while. But yeah, that chair was is the whole premise how the chairs are today. Yeah, it was the first lightweight wheelchair. You know, um people like to say, Oh, you know, this chair, that chair, but really Quadra was the first one. Um, yep. I remember Jeff cutting up my Everest and Jennings for me, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, and and then put me in one of their little prototypes, and the all of us, we were, there was a group of us that we we created a um, we created a team. Greg Thompson was a part of it. We used to call him Cure. Uh, we were called the Southern California Flyers, and uh, <laughs> Brad was a part of it. Eric Walls, um, Jeff. 
there were, you know, there was a variety of people that were a part of this little team and we traveled to some different competitions and stuff together. But yeah, Jeff and Mary and Brad and Eric were building those quadra chairs and really, you know, setting that foundation for understanding that we needed equipment that fit our lifestyles, folks. Yeah, and, <laughs> and color, and you needed color in them too, right? With yeah. The, the yeah. chairs that were coming out and all the color, anodized so, colors. So Candice, what was the color of your first Quadra? Oh, uh, you know what? They didn't have the colors yet. It was just the um, the steel. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 What did you have? Yeah, yeah. Or the aluminum, I, whatever they were made of. And I had the square tubing. Yeah, the square tubing. I had, I had the square the, tubing. Yeah. I had the gold. I had a gold anodized, gold anodized frame with anodized uh, red anodized hubs in the red front uh, casters, little neoprene wheels. Yeah, oh, I had the cool. I had the candy apple chair <laughs> with the uh, blue and yellow hubs on the wheels. It's all the colors. Nice, nice. Oh my gosh. And, uh, I asked for black you know, and they said a month later. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I had, yeah. um, so my daily chairs, I had this idea that because it was an accessory, I needed to have it either uh, black or silver because I needed to go with all my outfits. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so my racing chairs were the place where I... I expressed huh? out with color. I got a yes, that I expressed myself. <laughs> you know, we are sort of running out of time, but one thing I wanted to ask you, and I, I, we can have three episodes more with you, uh, and one <laughs> really, really about your um, all your athletic uh, accomplishments and, yeah, and stuff like that. Ton of them. But first, um, uh, when I was in rehab and and my uh, therapist i don't know did you know a sherm walker did she i know she took the group that went because you did boston marathon several times and won it correct yes and she popped in the tape and she goes i was there and she showed me the video of that famous year when it was raining what, what was that, 1984? Uh, I think it was two. I think it was two. Um, and it was, it was 82, the big, Yeah, I said was, you wanted uh, pictures of, of it yeah, from the newspaper where the crash. Yeah, Sean, if you have that, it's the crash. And so I don't know if you can just briefly talk about that marathon start because it was a crazy start for one, in the rain, and two, you're on top of a hill going straight down, correct? Yes. Yeah, so the start of the Boston is at the top of a hill. And so I am in the very center there with a red top on and blue. My legs are blue. I have a black helmet and I'm still upright. If you look at it, I'm still upright, but I got taken out by someone. And uh, so the start of the Boston Marathon is up on a hill and really in a wheelchair, we're going 40 miles an hour now. It's so fast. Yeah. And you can see we're still in our four wheel chairs. And what happened with that was it was raining. It was slippery and wet. And Jim Knob was trying out a new front end and something happened with it. He fell over. And when he fell over, people started to try to avoid him. And they started going down uh, because they flipped or they ran into someone. 
And so not long after this picture, oh, so this was 91. So it was nine, wait, 90, 91st Boston. No, 91st, yeah, so I think yeah. it was nine, it was probably 82. It was 82 or 81. I think it was 82. And so what happened was somebody came from the side of me on my right side and hit me, knocked me down. And when I slid across the road, one of my tires came off and we carried CO2 cartridges on our chairs as well as a spare tire. And I got someone on the side of the road to write me and I asked them to help me change my tire and put my air in and off I went and everybody was gone. And I put my head down and just kept pushing as hard as I could. I ended up winning the race. And Andre Vijay from Canada also went down and he ended up winning the race. And I remember crossing the finish line and bursting into tears because I had been so frightened and scared at that start and getting hit and all of it that I held it all in for the entire race and wasn't going to think about it. And it was such a testament to my ability to deny what had just happened to me. <laughs> you know, I think, I, think, I think human being superpower is denial. I mean, if we, if I go back to when I was first injured and I was like, nope, this is not happening, not happening to me. I like became a drug addict. I was in such denial. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I did it again during that race. I was in full <laughs> denial that I had just been in one of the most scary situations in my entire life. And then I crossed the finish line and it totally blew up on me. <laughs> you were on the best drugs possible. Endorphins. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. I, yeah. And I have been ever and since. Adrenaline. <laughs> yes. For being, yes. adrenaline. Yes. For recovery, drug. for people in recovery, sports is, a, you know, is a drug of choice. It's my drug of choice. I mean, I never feel better than when I get out and, and go for my push or my, you know, bike rides. It's just, you know, it's the love of my life. And, you know, right. if you took that away from me, it, it's it, depression goes down, you know. So don't take it away from me or I start shaking and I, I hate it. I, I It's a big part. Not only, you know, you won Boston a few times, but you were the first winner at the LA Marathon, right? For women's? Yes. Yes, I uh, was in the first LA Marathon and I, um, I feel really bad. I'm not remembering what my results are. Um, I think I won it three or four times. Um, yeah, LA. And then, uh, and I, I won Boston six times and I, I won a total of 84 marathons total in my career. So, you know, I did a heck of a lot more. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, the, the next time we yeah. have you on, we need to get some video of you pushing because you had a hell of oh, a push. Okay. You, okay, your push yeah. was amazing. Oh, yeah. thank you. You know, one of the things, Barbara Chambers, who is uh, my my first coach for wheelchair racing, she said she said to me, you know, there's two things about you that um, that are real standouts for her. And she said, one is you are coachable. Like I can totally coach you. You tell I tell you what to do and you do it. And she said the other is you just have the prettiest push. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, we got to see that for sure. That's what I loved about <laughs> Jeff Minnebreaker. Je Jeff taught me how to push. He says, you're not doing it right. Oh, says, you, you're so trying to push brilliant. like everybody else on the court. 
let me show you how to push. And, and it made oh, a, I love that. a world of difference. That's that's why he's so able to. He's so quick on those turns and the pickup of the speed, and you know, yeah. he, he yeah. was he was something else. Yeah. Well, and the whole well, idea that we each contributed to the other is a big part of the disability community. I think is that we, I think in general, the community is very open to each other and learning and and also celebrating what the others are doing. And I know that with Paralympic sport, oftentimes people would say that watched Paralympic sport and they watched Olympic sport, they would say, wow, you know, I really love watching Paralympic sport so much more because you all really feel like you want everyone to be successful. That it doesn't feel like there's this doggy dog kind of thing, which is a terrible you thing to say. I let's strike that. Um, but that there's this such a competitive nature that it it's it's it doesn't support real human growth. But Paralympians and their sports feel like they really are in it for the reason that is about being better. Like they just want to be better and yeah. that there isn't this whole other piece to it. And uh, yeah, and so I, I, I think that, I think as disabled people, we have understood in our lives that, that anything can happen and we're willing to share how we did something and not make someone else have to do that rough road to learn it and yeah. and i think that's a really really beautiful thing about our community is that we don't feel like well because i had to go down that rough road somebody else needs to just figure it out for themselves it's like no man i don't want you to have to figure it out i think to put it in the current vernacular what exactly what you're saying how we share with each other we help each other out we're not gatekeeping which is a oh, big deal you. in certain communities yeah. and, and you know we're willing to reach out and share and take everybody along the rising tide raises all ships yeah, so well said. Thank you, Lewis. And it's so beautiful now to get out for the four of us when we were last, the four of us together at the sports camp for in Pasadena. And the beauty of watching others and seeing the, you know, how much uh, th this is still alive and it's growing, it's growing more. And, you know, thank God for organizations out there that get people out there to, to continue this and us to get to watch, you know, uh, being that we yeah. blaze the trail and it continues. And, you know, and I love it when they say, come on, get out of here, Bobby. And it's like, no, this, this is your time. This is, you know, this is for you. You know, this is your yeah. time. I had my time and, uh, and plus, I don't know if I'm, my body's going to handle it <laughs> quite. <laughs> right. Right. You got another, another current example. Look at Kevin Mather, who just two, a couple of years ago won the gold medal in archery in Japan. 
it was Kevin that reached out to Damon Whitaker and said, Mm -hmm. come shoot archery with me. We need someone of your level. We, you would be awesome at this. And he's helping Damon get involved in the sport of archery. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the same, you know, beyond sport and advocacy, you know, coming up with new younger advocates in the disability community that are educated, that they understand what ableism is, they understand what racism is, they understand what are some of the systemic barriers that are in place for disabled people, and how then to advocate for policy change, for changes in systems, and to be able to to move that move us forward with the changes, because we still have not really seen the Americans with Disabilities Act be all that it can be. And we're, you know, we're coming, I think we're in our 34th year this year. And, and yes, this was, oh my gosh, that was so much fun. So were any, were three of you there? Four of you, Sean? I was there. I, um, I burned out that day because of the heat. I was like, no, and I, all, all, everybody who came back from that's like, oh, it was so hot, but it was, it was fun. I know, I know, I missed a great day that day. I was oh in the back row. Stadium, and so Sam Maddox, Sam Maddox, who is a man that has been instrumental for us in the yeah. spinal cord injured community in so many ways. He created the the Spinal Network book in the beginning in the eighties. He um, and Barry I was Corbett. That's my yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and Sam has been, he was the knowledge manager for the Reed Foundation for a long time. He's written this book called The First 90 Days, which is a book that you want to get to people when it first happens to them, their spinal cord injury, so that they can see what and where they need to be and what needs to happen and how to make it happen in those first 90 days. Because we all know those first 90 days are critical. Yeah, that yeah, book, say, we include that book in the gift baskets in the backpacks at the Triumph Foundation that we give oh. to the newly injured patients. Newly injured, yeah. That Thank book you. is in Absolutely. every single one. Yeah, Sam is Sam is a gem. Oh my gosh. Oh, there it is right there. Yeah, he's got one right there. Yeah, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. you know, and and so Sam, you know, the, the work that Sam's done in, in this, this area, I mean, I think he'd be like a really fun uh, guest for you because oh, yes. he can really yeah. talk about the history. Oh my gosh, first 90 days. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and so having advocates that know that the information that's needed to be able to build the new system and the new policy that comes out there, that's, that's one of the things that I'm working on now is putting together some education around the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Rehabilitation Act, and and some other pieces of legislation that exist now so people can understand what they are and what our protections are. But what do we need to do to make it better, right? Like what yeah. needs to be the next thing? And and so we need we need young people and and folks to to be able to, again, like you said, Bobby, earlier, take that, take it next to the next level, you know, that our mm-hmm. little bodies are wearing out and uh, yeah, right. we have to, we have to preserve them as much as possible. So we're gonna, 
We're going to teach you all how to do this. Yeah, to move <laughs> forward. We need to help the next generation of disability. And I, and I yeah. use generation and disability based on when we were injured. Teach the next generation to pay it forward. How to do that. Yeah, yes, you mentioned exactly. earlier in the conversation about reimagining ourselves. And I tell patients exactly what you said. Our rehab is not just getting better and learning how to use a catheter and roll a wheelchair and maybe walking or striving towards it. It's about reimagining ourselves, reinventing ourselves, and learning to up our communication skills. Yeah, because yes. for oh my us gosh. to That's teach everybody about yeah. what our lives are about and how we can be part of theirs, you have to have the ability to communicate it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was, you know, the thing you, one of the things you brought up there too about learning to walk and, you know, that's the thing when we were, anybody who's had a spinal cord injury, the first thing you think is I'm going to walk again, I'm going to walk again. And yeah. that's okay. It's okay to think that, but get healthy, mm -hmm. connect with the community and, and be ready when that happens or doesn't happen. And that's an ableist mentality that pushes us to that idea that I'm going to walk again, because that's what is considered valuable in our society is walking. And what is the truth is however people move around is valuable. And, and so I'm not trying to diminish anybody's hopes to be able to walk again when they have a new spinal cord injury. What I hope that people will take in is that it's a complete package, right? Like you, you got to be a part of the whole thing in the beginning and don't just put all your eggs in this one space because it's, it, it could be don't different. Get crushed. <laughs> yeah, it could be different than what you imagined. And, and dismantle that ableist mentality that you're only worthwhile if you're walking because because yeah. that yeah. we all know that that's just a temporary position or activity <laughs> yes yeah candace yeah. it was so awesome to have you uh oh thanks it was awesome to be here yeah. thank you yeah we're gonna have you again and uh like i said we we got a couple more areas to hit and uh but it was yeah. a gift uh, to have you here. And, um, you know, we said our sponsors at the beginning, thanks to mobility professionals and uh, uh, urology professionals. Uh, yeah. Pay the bill right there. Thank you, everyone. Um, any last wisdom, words of wisdom that you want to give us before? Uh, <laughs> Look at Louis <laughs> with the, yeah, the dark. Right. He's like, check it out. Oh, you know what? Um, I say lead on, man. Lead on. Yeah. There you go. Awesome. Thank um, you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I've had so much fun. I do too feel like we could go on and on and on. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. yeah. Especially we would love to have you as a guest anytime. You know, you. my word, my words of wisdom is, you know, listening to the four of us, it's, you're not living here in Southern California. If it wasn't so dang expensive, I would say move here because that's what you get here. You get a lot of that. And I feel 
you know, when I talk to a, a lot of people in other states that are in rural areas, it's just like, oh, I wish you had what we have, you know, and you can really sense when you get a, a form of community and it, you can really just expand your wings and and fly to wherever you want to uh, with, with, with the, the the things that we've got to do out here. And I know other states with bigger cities always get to do that. But when I hear somebody that lives in this small little community, it's just like, oh, you got to get out here. You got to get out here because the, the uh, possibilities are endless out here. Uh, yes. You know, what, what you can accomplish with yourself and with your ability. Yeah, I'm just or so just glad ability. Candace moved back to Southern <laughs> California. You, yeah. You're back, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and we can talk about that too, but everyone, thank you so much for joining us at the chat. We couldn't even, we had so much, uh, so many great things to say. We couldn't get to you as much. I know uh, my friend Paul asked if you knew Colette from Canada. She was oh, a, yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so. Oh, my God. That woman is amazing. Yeah. So and then uh, what high school did you go to? So I can tell Mickey. Edgewood. Edgewood, yeah. Edgewood. Mickey went to right uh, down North the street View. from me. Yeah, I, I went to Northview. Mickey went to Covina High. Yeah, Covina oh. High. There it is. I Robert, didn't you go to San Dimas or something? No, I, I, I moved out here in the 80s. I grew up in the oh, South okay. Bay area. Okay. Yeah, so. but I love it. But there, there's a bunch of us from the San Gabriel Valley. Yes. Thank you so much. And uh, until next time, live, right. to, live roll. to roll. Yep. <laughs>